In this episode of our series on FX rules changes in 2023, we'll be looking at how SA-CCR and UMR are affecting FX trading and the solutions LSEG can provide clients. I'm Mike Cahill, and our guide is Chris Leonard Appleton, head of FX risk and regulation at LSEG. We began our chat by asking Chris to explain what are SA-CCR and UMR and whom do they impact? So, Chris, there have been a lot of discussions recently about SA-CCR and UMR. They, they sound kind of exotic. Very briefly, what are these and, and who do they affect? Well, hey, Mike, it's uh, probably easier to start with what the abbreviations mean, and then we can sort of go into what they are. So, SA-CCR is the standard approach to counterparty credit risk. It uh, certainly gets the blood pumping, that one. And then UMR are the uncleared margin rules, which um, have been implemented for uncleared trades in OTC derivatives. Um, so it's worth noting that you know, SACA, and, and that's how I refer to SACCR, SACA and UMR are um, they're one small part of a very large package of prudential rule changes that have occurred since the financial crisis. The intention of them have really been to uh, make financial firms' balance sheets far more stable and resilient. Um, and also to ensure that uh, OTC derivative trades that are uncleared are properly collateralized so that if there is a default, then people aren't losing a lot of money. So I think, you know, very briefly, um, SACA, uh, I mean, has been implemented really in phased approaches since mid-2021. Um, it, it's basically, it promulgates a standard approach to calculating uh, counterparty credit risk and replaces um, something that was called the SEM. So, it, so yeah, SACA replaces uh, the SEM, which is the uh, current exposure method, and also the SA, which is the standardized approach uh, method to calculating counterparty credit risk. Um, and it's far more sensitive than those two models, which is why I think we've seen a lot of effects in, you know, certainly the FX market, which we may go into in a bit more detail later. Um, UMR are the, as I said earlier, the uncleared margin rules. Uh, there's two facets to these rules. The first is the exchange of variation margin. Um, and the second is the exchange of initial margin. Uh, variation margin, those requirements have been in place since 2017, critically didn't apply to FX forwards and swaps. So you know, all of these requirements are quite interrelated, but this is one of the reasons why we've seen a bit of an impact from SACA um, in the FX market. Um, the initial margin rules have really been implemented in a staged way. And the reason for that is initial margin is a lot more expensive than variation margin. So the view from the regulators was that uh, the industry needed more time to prepare for the IM requirements as opposed to the VM ones. The last tranche of rules went live in September last year. Um, and this is where if firms had an average aggregate notional amount or an ANA on their derivative portfolios of more than 8 billion euros, then they got captured by those initial margin requirements. So you know, when, when the rules really started coming into effect, the ANA was around $3 trillion from recollection. So very few institutions other than the really large market makers were affected. Now we've got a, a huge swathe of buy-side firms who have been caught by that because of the lowering thresholds. So, you know, really, you know, we're starting to see the final convulsions, if you like, of these rule implementations since the financial crisis in trying to make the financial system more resilient. 
So, Chris, you've got the introduction of these regulatory requirements. How has FX trading been affected by them? So I think it's very much an evolving story at the moment. Um, so in particular with SACA, uh, we have observed a widening of spreads um, in, unca- in uncollateralized short dated swaps and forwards. So these were the swaps and forward instruments that were heavily affected by SACA because they weren't subject to the variation margin rules. So the cost of the charges were higher. So there was a report in the full effects about a year ago. Uh, which reported that you know one of the largest market makers on the street had started widening spreads in response to SACA and had in some instances actually stopped quoting or pricing in those instruments altogether. Um, so that's obviously a very big impact. You know, that particular market maker was normally around one or two in in you know the general rankings. They've dropped to much lower than that now. Uh, so that's obviously quite a big impact. Um, What's been difficult to tell is whether that was idiosyncratic or whether that's general across the industry. So uh, about a year ago, uh, we also saw a bit of a study um, that looked to regress the data from you know, the implementation of SACA through to today. And the way it looked to do that was to basically take normalized spreads and then regress for the effect of SACA. Um, that study uh, did see uh, an effect from SACA across the industry, but it wasn't really conclusive, if I'm honest. And I think one of the biggest issues that we've seen to date is while we saw widening, there's been a lot of macro shocks that have hit the FX industry during that period. So you've had the Ukraine war, um, we've obviously had interest rate movements, we've had high inflation. So you know, all of those sort of macro events have led to greater volatility. Um, and yeah, that's been particularly the case in the EM currency pairs, but also in the G10s, uh, which have been most affected by SACA because of these variation margin requirements. So I think it's um, an unclear story at the moment. Undoubtedly, SACA has had an effect on the cost of capital, um, but whether it's been significant enough to really explain the widening of spreads that we've seen, I think remains to be seen. Um, I think in the uncleared, uh, you know, in response to uncleared margining rules, what we have seen is a substantial pickup in clearing. And the reason for that is, and this is particular in the, inter, in, in the interbank NDF market in particular, which, you know, anecdotally we can see from the data is nearly entirely cleared now. Um, the reason for that is obviously the collateralization charges are generally lower uh, than, the, than the bilateral non-cleared margining charges. So, of course, you know, there's a very economic reason why the banks would move to clearing as a result. Um, we haven't necessarily seen the same pickup in uh, the dealer-to-client space, um, and we, we thought we might have seen that as a result of you know, the IM rules coming into force last September. Um, I think time will tell on this one. I suspect there might be operational issues why we haven't seen a move to clearing there. Um, but it's interesting that there are clear divergences in the interbank space and the and the dealer to customer space, and yeah, you know, as a result of yeah you know, those UMR rules coming into force. So I think if I could summarise all of that, um, there have definitely been impacts both to the cost of capital and to clearing workflows, but maybe not as decisive as we might have anticipated when the you know those rules were first getting promulgated. So, so what are we doing to help clients with SACA and UMR? What's what's LSEC doing, Chris? Well, I think there's a number of things that LSEC can do given our core competency. So the first is that um, towards the end of this year, we will be launching an entirely cleared 
uh, NDF Central and Middle Order Book in the interbank space. We'll be doing that in Singapore and, and the US. Um, and the reason for that, or you know, the benefit to clients of that central limit order book will be that they'll be able to trade NDFs in a standard manner and have it you know, put straight through to clearing. So that will uh, lower their UMR charges, but obviously it will also lower their SACA charges as well, because um, if you clear trades, it, it invites a far lower SACA charge uh, than if you do not. Um, so that will help. On our dealer to customer market, FXL, we did launch um, a post-trade clearing um, service by Settlement Center last year. Um, we've seen some pickup in that, um, not substantial, but you know, if, if clients are interested in that service to, to really lower or well, to remove the UMR charges, you won't lower your collateral charges because you still have to post collateral to clear, but you'll certainly lower the cost there, then you know, we can help out in that space. And of course, uh, going down the road, there are going to be more developments in the future uh, in this area. So what's what's LSEC doing to help clients with those developments, Chris? Yeah, I think we, we can probably anticipate a number of changes. I mean, the first one, which I'll just highlight, but not go into any detail on, are the Edinburgh reforms that have been announced in the UK. I think what we're most closely monitoring there are any divergences that start to occur in the prudential space between uh, the UK, the EU, and the UK and the US as a result of those reforms. Um, I think, you know, given the economic situation in the UK, there may be a temptation to reduce some of the requirements in that space to try and stimulate economic growth. Um, we'll see what happens. I think the biggest one that's on the horizon at the moment is the fundamental review of the trading book or FRTB. Um, so FRTB very quickly is the requirement to capitalize market risk. Um, and it's a it's a very complicated set of rules and standards that have been put forth from the BCBS. Um, and what we're seeing at the moment is divergences, not just in implementation timelines, but also in standards. So if I just focus on the implementation timelines first, I think you know for the UK, the EU, and Australia, we're expecting go live to be in January 2025. In Hong Kong. We're expecting go live to be July this year. And in Japan and Canada, we're anticipating it to be early 2024. And in the US, we don't actually know. So, you know, this is this is giving everyone a lot of headaches at the moment. And then in terms of the divergences and standards, what we're seeing is that the EU, which as you'd anticipate was the first out of the block when the BCBS uh, put these standards forth, you know, published these standards, um, they've set the law up in the EU to very much reflect the EU banking industry. So, for example, there's lower charges on carbon trading, whereas we may not see that in the UK or the US. So there are very subtle divergences in how the different jurisdictions are actually implementing this. That all adds up to a big compliance headache for uh, our banking clients. Um, we can't necessarily help with that, unfortunately. That's just a factor of life. And, you know, the, the banks are you know, pretty uh, wise to complexity and regulatory change now. They've been dealing with over a decade of it. Where we can help is in data. So FRTB is going to be incredibly data intensive um, in terms of the inputs that are required for whichever model banks choose to use under the FRTB. Um, we obviously have a pretty vast suite of data products that we can use to help our clients. And you know, without going into too much detail, I think I'll just leave it with 
you know, if, if our clients have any questions on that, we're here to help and get in touch. Our thanks to Chris Leonard Appleton. I'm Mike Cahill, and thank you for listening.